be finishing up uh, Luke chapter uh, 1 today. You can turn to 804 in your church Bibles, um, or Luke chapter 1, verse 57. My name is Dan. I'll be guiding us through this text. If anyone has any reason why this man and this woman should not be married, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. You've heard that phrase at many a wedding, but have you ever heard anyone actually speak up? Now, this is the beginning of the sermon, so you're probably expecting a cool story. I don't have one. And most of you probably don't either, and that's actually my point. Because if you're going to interrupt a very important ceremony, you'd better have something to say. In our journey through, a book, through the book of Luke, a very important ceremony is about to be interrupted for a very good reason. A life-changing reason. An old priest named, named Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth are dedicating not just a miracle child, but they're presenting one who is going to be a crucial part of God's salvation plan. It's just that none of their guests know it yet. And in this, we're going to see their belief result in obedience to God, and this is going to cause a good bit of disorder, as obedience does. But it will be very much worth it. Because this obedience will open a door for people to learn what salvation from God really means. So it's like attention, Israel. Salvation is not about economic gain. Salvation is not even about getting a baby. But salvation is about the forgiveness of sins. And from all of this, you and I are going to take away a very important first principle. When it comes to God's plan of salvation, if you believe, you have something to say. Let's start in verse 57, and I'll read through verse 64. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. The first thing we learn from Luke here is that obedience follows belief. Just a quick word on, on obedience. We've seen two really big examples of it so far 
in the book of Luke, and we're only partway through the, the first chapter. Both Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, have been visited by angels and told about a plan, and they believed. And then they obeyed by following the plan. Now, Zechariah was visited too, but he did not believe. And so he has been silenced for the past maybe year. That brings us to the setup for this great ceremony. First, let's start in verse 58 and state the obvious and set the scene. God gives Elizabeth a child. She's old, she's been barren, and she gets a child. And look at verse 58 with me. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced. The same mercy that applied to Mary earlier has given Elizabeth a son. And so this happy celebration comes, and this is where culturally they would name the child. And that'll help us understand why there's so much ink spilled about an argument over a name. Let's look at verse 59 to see the formality of the event. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. It's friends, relatives. Now, I do media work, so I actually kind of get what's happening here. Um, it's like the handouts are printed for the ceremony. You know, the dedication of Zachariah Jr. or whatever. And the cameras are rolling and everybody knows their lines. They've been planning this ever since they heard. And so far, so good. And then look at verse 60. But his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. That's great if you, if you print handouts because you make more money. <laughs> The ceremony stops. Why is this so important? Well, for one thing, it's important because this was the plan the angel communicated to her. And so she believes and she proves it by obeying, even though it is about to sting a little bit. Look at the chaos that follows in verse 62. The guests actually make signs to Zechariah to see if this is okay. Now, what do we know about Zechariah? He's mute. That's probably why he's not really a part of this ceremony. But they make signs to him. You know what that means? He might be deaf too. I mean, he's old. Yet, even though he can provide no assistance to the ceremony, it would seem, they're like, do something. What's going on? What are you doing? And he writes down, John. What's happened? Zechariah has proven that he believes too. He just proved it by obeying. And the guests wonder. Now, we might wonder what they're wondering, and it's not really clear from the text, but we know this, John, even by his name, will be different. Something's different. It's usual for the child to be named after the father, not so much here. 
To see such a disruption in such an important ceremony implies that something very important is about to happen. And then, in verse 64, something very important happens. Look at it with me. As they're wondering, Zechariah's voice is restored. Why? Well, one way of looking at it is that he has believed and obeyed, and so God has blessed him for his obedience. That's subpoint two. So obedience follows belief, and then blessing follows obedience. But here's what I mean. I don't want to just think about it in the simple terms that I think we often do, like obey God and he'll bless you. If you obey God and you're hurting, he'll heal you. If you're obeying God, he'll give you a baby. That's not exactly what we're talking about here because that's not what the author is talking about. Look at the end of verse 64. The blessing that follows obedience is actually Zechariah blessing God. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, God has blessed Zechariah in a manner of speaking. Zechariah has a son, and he's been healed. And so Zechariah's first words could have been, I can talk, or I have a son, or I can do my job again. But as good as those things are, I think what the author is saying is that they're nothing in comparison. Zechariah has something much bigger to talk about. And so this ceremony is about to get really interesting as we figure out what exactly he says and why it's so important. And to do that, we're going to skip over verses 64 and 65 for now and then come back. That's the people's response to his blessing. It's a prophecy. So let's look at point two, which is, in a manner of speaking, the greatest blessing. And this is from God through the mouth of Zechariah to his people. Salvation is forgiveness from God. We're going to focus on verses 67 through 79 and read the entire prophecy. But I'm just going to break it up into pieces and I'll start with verses 67 through 69. Because there's a number of things being said here. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now this whole prophecy, Zechariah I think is saying four things designed to correct the commonly held cultural view of what salvation is. Because he uses the word salvation a lot. The first thing he's saying is in these three verses that God is mighty to save. Or you might just think about it as God's the one doing the saving. That's where salvation comes from. Look at verse 69. The word horn is used to describe the salvation. Biblically, the reader would hear this and they would immediately think of power. Horn was used in battle. Horn was used in triumph. So this salvation is a powerful event and it's brought on by God. 
Now you'll also note in, in these verses a reference to David. Back in 2 Samuel 22, David uses these exact same words to bless God when he's rescued from King Saul and defeats his enemies. And so Zechariah, in repeating these words, is saying that the salvation of God is on par, perhaps even greater in scope than God giving King David victory in battle. And so God is bringing salvation like that to his people right now because the language is all present tense. Imagine the wonder building as these guests hear their beloved priest speak again and they hear about victory and they hear about conquest and they think about their enemies being defeated. Now let's move on to verses 70 through 73. I'll just read the first half of 73. As he spoke, that is, as God spoke, by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So Zechariah is taking it way back. The second thing Zechariah is saying here is that God has promised salvation all along. In other words, this isn't some new idea. This salvation we're talking about now is the same as it was since Abraham. Look at verse 70. It's the same salvation the prophets spoke of. Look at verse 73. God's promise to Abraham is directly connected to it. It's all part of the same plan. But then look also at verse 71. Things will take a little bit of a shift because we're reminded of what salvation means. Saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. Just keep that tucked in. We'll come back to it. But for now, consider again these Jewish listeners. They've been huddled in a corner of Rome. And Israel, historically, has been handed over to enemy after enemy. And now, at these words from their priest, perhaps their long-promised salvation is finally here. The wonder continues to build, I would think. Let's keep going with verses 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So thirdly, we see the result of salvation. Transformed people. People who are being holy and righteous and serving God without any fear. Not huddled in a corner of Rome. I mean, I I might think that some of the sharper listeners at this ceremony might hear this and think, oh, okay, I get it. We're not going to need a priest anymore. We're going to serve God joyfully. We won't need one. Again, you can imagine the wonder continuing to mount, and it's all connected to John. And now, Zechariah looks down at his son, And connects him to the plot. And this 
is what Zechariah says. And here's where it gets really interesting. Verses 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This right here is the heart of God's plan of salvation. Forgiveness of sins. Israel, that is your greatest need. Not freedom from Rome. Not victory in battle. Forgiveness of sin. Let's pause because we can miss exactly how important this is because we hear it so much. But if we go back to the rest of the prophecy, it now reads very differently. Let's look at verse 71 again. We should be saved from our enemies. Now, if our biggest need is forgiveness from God, who's our greatest enemy? God is. Let's look at verse 74 again. We, after being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him. Who are we being delivered from? God. By God. And we're being saved to serve God. In other words, salvation is this. Right here in Zechariah's prophecy. We are saved by God, from God, for God. We are saved by God, from God, for God. And the reason for all of this is right in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. If this were a modern ceremony, this is the point at which you would hear a great deal of feedback from Zachariah's microphone. Perhaps somebody in the back would drop the champagne glass. God's plan of salvation announced is not about being politically free or wealthy or given a baby. It is about the forgiveness of sin. Something only God can do. And John will pave the way for the Savior. What this also means for the reader, as they apply these words forward to the rest of Luke, is that, yes, this coming Savior will do amazing things. But nothing will be as amazing as these words. Your sins are forgiven. And likewise for us. He has done amazing things right here in this room. Given us miracle children, has he not? Sustained our bodies. Even healed us. 
given us our jobs back. But don't miss the point. The greatest thing that you will ever tell people is this. Jesus forgave my sins. That's the best news. Do you believe that? I am so glad that God opened the mouth of Zechariah. Because Zechariah certainly had something to say. So what's the response? It's point three. How people respond to the blessing of salvation. I'm going to read verse 80 first. And this is John's response. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So what happens in John's response is he grows. He believes, he separates, and then he prepares. Here's all I mean. Look at the verse. He's raised in accordance with the prophecy. He separates himself from all the trappings of the culture, living in the wilderness, and he prepares for the mission. And I could speak a lot on this, but just basically, here's all that's happening. Just like Zechariah, and just like Elizabeth, and just like Mary, he believed, he obeyed, and he was blessed. He got to be a part of the plan. Or as verse 80 puts it, he grew and he became strong in spirit. Second, look at the people's response. We're going to go back to verses 65 through 66, which we skipped over. They kind of do the opposite. Verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him laid, up, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the people stumble. They wonder, but then they fear, and then they're confused. So this scene, just as a reminder, happens after Zechariah's prophecy. Before that, they wondered, when he just got a different name. They wondered, what's going on? Fair enough. But then the prophecy hits the full breadth of what's being talked about. And that wonder is not wonder anymore. Anxiety, fear follows. Why? I think it's because maybe Zechariah just told them from Scripture that they're enemies of God. And that God wants to save them anyway. I mean... That is a weighty statement, which is why we normally don't tell it to people. <laughs> but then they say in verse 66, what then will this child that is John be? And I get it. I mean, we're talking a lot about prophecy and you and I have the whole book to draw from. So we don't have this, the excuse that they do. But Zechariah already told them the answer in his prophecy. He's going to be prophet of the Most High. He's not going to be the man. He's going to prophesy the man. And they miss it. And the evidence for this, I think, is later on in the book when the people start mistaking John for Jesus. 
They just, for whatever reason, don't get it. They don't. And so while John grows more sure, you might say that they grow perhaps less sure. Unlike John and Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary, they don't believe, so they can't obey. Now again, I mean, they don't have all of Luke, and we do. So, you know, we can't claim ignorance. But before I get to us and our response to this salvation blessing, let's consider one more response first. What response would Paul's accusers have had to this story? Quick explanation of what I'm saying here. In case you're new here, some of the preachers here, we kind of have this theory that the reason that Luke was written was because the Apostle Paul, who came later, and he became a Christian after himself being an enemy of Christianity, was now himself being charged by religious leaders as being a cult leader and an enemy of Rome. And this account, written by Paul's friend Luke, is considered by some to be a response to those charges. But even if you don't follow that theory, no problem. That's fine. It's just theory. In either case, here's how any religious leader would have responded to this text. Because it really was a game changer. They would either be very angry or very hopeful. Those are the two responses. Angry because a priest named Zechariah just went public quoting the Old Testament to contend that God's plan of salvation is about forgiveness of sins and it's not opposed to Judaism. It's actually the fulfillment of Judaism. And if you're a religious leader, because the system was quite corrupt at this time, your position of power is in great danger when you read these words. Because you can't manipulate people anymore. Because you're not doing the saving. You never were. But now it's clear. God is. So yeah, the religious leaders might be a little bit angry. But perhaps for some of the religious leaders, there would be hope. You can imagine a priest reading this, meditating on it, and saying... If this is true, and Zechariah was accepted by God even after his great failure, it's not too late for me either. So how about us? How does this apply to us? I have two applications. The first one is for the, the church, and the second one is maybe a little bit more personal. Application number one. Remember, church, that the heart of Jesus' mission of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to put myself on trial here, but let me know if you can relate. I often am tempted to reduce or cheapen salvation into one of these phrases. God has a purpose for your life. Or, God, helps you, God wants to help you clean your life up. 
Or, God wants you to do good. And those things are are true. But salvation, at its heart, is about something only God can do. Forgive sins. That was the heart of Jesus' mission. So it must be the heart of our gospel presentation. So many churches... Now, just a second. Nobody really says they do this. But so many churches can so easily slide into things like meeting felt needs. You know, we're just trying to love on the community. You know, I'm just trying to get to know my neighbor. And then six years passed. Have you told them the gospel yet? Ah, we're getting there. Really? Are you? And so many people can host retreat or event after event after event that just simply pacifies. Just hanging out. And we call it fellowship. We have the audacity. But friends, if you believe that the purpose of salvation is the forgiveness of sins, you have something much better to say. Here's one step you can take here, and I'll address the men in the form of an invitation. Because, don't get me wrong, I feel like our church does focus on the sin thing. I think we do that, so that's good. I just want to encourage you guys. Men, knowing that salvation is up to the Lord gives us, gives everyone, but to men specifically, a healthy fear of the Lord. And as the book of Proverbs puts it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is a lifelong pursuit. And can I just cite Zechariah as an example? He was old when he got it. And he was a priest. And we don't have priests here, but our church eagerly desires humble leaders like Zachariah. We want deacons and we want elders and we want preachers and we want husbands and fathers to grow in the wisdom and fear the Lord, not men who shrink back. And this October is our annual men's retreat. And our focus will be on getting wisdom. Please come to that. We will not pacify you we promise application number two know that forgiveness is your biggest need so you're called to believe and you're called to obey and this means from this example that every now and then you're going to be a bit of a disruption to people is your biggest need to be safe Or is your biggest need for your neighbors to think you're just not that crazy? What do you really need? To miss the answer to this is to miss the point of Zechariah's prophecy. Because when he said the purpose of salvation is to be saved from enemies, remember, he was talking about God. 
So the correct application of this text is to know that your biggest need is and was and always will be to be saved from your sin and salvation has already taken care of that. Your biggest need in life is covered if you are in Christ. Now that might disrupt some relationships. Like Zechariah, people might even misinterpret what you very clearly say. But even if people reject you, that's fine because you have salvation. That's your biggest need and it's covered. You can't lose what matters most. Now our Savior, Jesus, ironically, can really identify with this. Religious officials wanted him dead. His followers, they weren't simply confused when he spoke truth. They abandoned him. They ran away. They left the party. What motivated him to continue? The mission of salvation. His obedience blessed God fully, and so that brought salvation for all who believe in his work, all who believe in his obedience. So ironically, he obeyed, but who gets the blessing? We do. We do. 